you have your copy of the Word of God, I want to invite you to open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 5. As Mr. Al said, we continue to walk through the Gospel of John, and we find ourselves this morning in chapter 5. It begins a new cycle. It's the uh, chapter 4 ended the, uh, the Cana cycle, and uh, chapter 5 begins uh, a new cycle where Jesus is walking through uh, the, the different festivals that surround the people of Jerusalem, uh, the people of Israel, and their worship of him. And so uh, this morning, the, the title of the message, Jesus Graciously Heals. That's what we see in this passage, Jesus Graciously Heals. And so uh, in chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, if you found your place, say amen. Follow along as I read. <clears throat> After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew, or Aramaic, Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years, verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me or no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now, it was a Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well is the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. And afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin any more, so that nothing worse happens to you the man went away and told the jews that it was jesus who had made him well for this reason the jews were persecuting jesus because he was doing these things on the sabbath but he answered them my father is working until now and i myself am working for this reason therefore the jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the sabbath but also was calling god his own father making himself equal with God. As we approach this passage this morning, I think really the the big idea that we need to see in this passage, especially in verses 1 through 18, but really in chapter 5, it is that Jesus is God the Son and God in flesh, and he is is coming to work and to uh, reveal his identity in that way and in in that person. And I I want us to see that Jesus' claim of equality with God is foundational for our faith. I want us to see that this morning because it's significant. It's important. Because his signs reveal the glory of God and point to the true identity of who he is as God in flesh. In fact, an appropriate confession of Jesus involves a a recognition that Jesus and the Father are one in unity and in essence. 
God the Son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, has entered creation by physically manifesting His presence among us. The signs He does are proof that He is the Son of God and is accomplishing the work of God the Father. And all who have spiritual eyes to see will make the good confession and believe on Him as the only way to God. And so this morning as we approach verses 1 and 2 and see that Jesus graciously heals this lame man, I want us to notice first that Jesus has sovereign control over sickness. And we really see this in verses 1 through 15. But specifically here, verses 1 through 9, verse 1 gives us the background where he's at. He's heading to Jerusalem or goes up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. And while he was in Jerusalem, it tells us the area in verse 2. He's by the, the sheep gate. And, of course, the, the sheep gate is where uh, this, this man was lying. It tells us a little bit about the sheep gate. There was a pool there called Bethesda, and it has five porticos or five porches. And the scene is there were many people, literally, verse 3 says, in these lay a multitude of those who were sick. Many people were laid there around in these porticos by these pools or by this pool. And they were all waiting for the same thing. They were waiting for the water to start bubbling up. They were waiting for the water to be stirred. But there was a superstition, a myth that kind of went along with that. And that myth, you, you might have noticed that we kind of skipped the second half of verse 3 and, and verse 4. That, that's because you, <clears throat> these verses really, uh, they, they are they're scribal additions to the text of, of John, and they were really written to clarify what we see happening in verse 7. The sick man, sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred. And, and, and the reason I say that they are additions to the text is they, uh, if you notice in your Bible, maybe they're in the margin or maybe they're bracketed there, that second half of verse 3 and verse 4. And this bracket that's placed there, it, it shows us, especially in the, maybe if you're reading from the New International Version or the English Standard Version or the New American Standard Version, if you're reading from the King James Version, you'll see that it's still in the text. But the reason we know that this is probably an insert is because the oldest and best manuscripts that we have, Greek manuscripts, do not have this portion in the texts. In fact, this portion was probably added by a scribe later. And, and I'm just telling you this because you see that bracket there and, uh, and it gives us helpful information about the background. But the result of the textual, the result here is that we have been able to find through textual criticism, or scholars rather I should say, have, have discovered through textual criticism by comparing these thousands of, of Greek manuscripts with nuanced approaches, they have, they have found that uh, that these particular verses were not included in the best and oldest, most complete manuscripts. And so this happens here, and we have accurate versions of our English translation of Scripture today. It happens here. It happens at a few other places in Scripture. But I, I want to assure you that the, the, the result of, uh, of, of this finding, or the result of, uh, of this statement that I'm saying here, it, when this occurs in Scripture... 
uh, in a, a few different places. It, it, it only occurs in those few places, and there's really no significant doctrinal changes or implications that result from something like this in the text at any place in Scripture, such as the case here, verse 3b, waiting for the moving of the waters, verse 4, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. There's no doctrinal implication there for us that we would build any sort of doctrine on. Rather, it's just simply this is a, an addition that kind of helps us understand what's driving this sick man's thought in verse 7. So it, it does offer clarification for us as to why the sick were, were gathered around the pool, gathered on those, uh, on those porches there, around the pool, those five different porticos. But verse 6 tells us that Jesus knew that he had already been ill. He had already been in this condition for some time. And so I think what we see here is that Jesus, in his sovereign control over sickness, he certainly knows of this man's condition. He knows what's happening in this man's life. He has knowledge of this man's condition. I'm sure that over a period of 38 years, this man's hopelessness has, has, has continued to increase and his hopelessness of being healed from his physical paralysis had grown. I can't imagine the difficulty with which he had gone through. Perhaps his view of God had been shaped even by his sickness as he continued in sickness. Maybe in the early years he had prayed earnestly, God, would you heal me, seeking God's healing of course, that's speculation, but after 38 years, he seems to have given up on any thought of God's favor and God's healing in his life. In fact, I think it's rather obvious because when Jesus asked him in verse 6, do you wish to be made well or do you wish to get well? He replied with excuses as to why he couldn't get well. He didn't really answer the question. And not to major on the minor here this morning, but Jesus knew this man's condition both physically and spiritually. We've already seen really the interchange between Jesus and, and knowing the people that he's encountering and speaking with. We saw it with Nicodemus in, in John chapter 3 where he speaks to Nicodemus and speaks directly into his circumstance and situation in life. We see it with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 how he, he kind of calls her out of her life of sin and, and points out the very sin that she was living in, and we now here see it in chapter 5. And clearly, the implication is that Jesus knows people. He knows His creation. He knows you and I. He knows our subjection to physical and emotional and spiritual frailties. He knows us very well. He knows the things that we struggle with day in and day out. He knows that very difficult season that we walk through we certainly see that in this man's life. 38 years, 38 years he had been going to the same place, doing the same thing, trying to get healing, believing in a superstition. I want you to know that Jesus doesn't only know us. Because if, if that were it, if he only knew us, we would be condemned. If he, think about it, if he only just knew us, if he, if he knew about Nick Taylor, 
just knew what was going on in his heart as he dies, then, then Nick Taylor would be condemned. But he doesn't just know us. He, he, he exercises compassion toward us. And we see that as he exercises compassion toward this lame man. In verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? He asked him, do, do you want to get well? 38 years he'd been laying there. Not specifically right there, but he had been coming there. 38 years. Do you wish to get well? And he responds with that excuse as to why he can't be healed. And one commentator says, this man, it shows us he has a poor understanding of God because it conveys a sense of his, his hopelessness. He isn't thinking of anything other than the superstitious uh, occurrence of, of the stirring of the waters. He had no hope that God would heal him. Notice, though, that Jesus doesn't get into a theological debate with a guy. He just exercises compassion toward him. This man doesn't know who Jesus is. That's clear from verse 13. If you kind of fast forward a few verses. But the man who was healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had slipped away. And there was a crowd there. Maybe you know someone who's like this. Maybe you know someone or even you yourself. Find find your circumstances to be similar maybe you know someone whose life is filled with superstition and they've they've lost all hope in god maybe they've lost all trust and hope that god would ever look into their situation and and exercise compassion or mercy toward them but i want you to know that god is compassionate christ is merciful people today are looking for hope they're looking for hope. They're, they're, they're looking everywhere for hope. In fact, I noticed maybe two weeks ago, maybe three, but I know two weeks ago, there was a, a psychic and tarot card reading business that just opened near my house on Corsi Boulevard. It's a vivid reminder to, that people today are looking for answers in all the wrong places. They would go there and try to seek omens or seek, uh, seek information from uh, from beyond the grave or seek seek information from the stars and you know people try to find hope in anything and everything they want so desperately to believe in something that will tackle the difficult and painful issues of life and Jesus comes and he offers to this man compassion compassion to his hopelessness compassion in the midst of his illness but that's not all that he does. Jesus comes to this man. He knows his situation. He offers him compassion. And then you know what he does is he exercises his power in this man's life. He manifests, sovereignly manifests his power in this man's life. And he tells the man in verse 8, Jesus said, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. I didn't say... Start walking or I'm going to heal you. Just spoke and said, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. And immediately, verse 9, 
The man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. In this moment, with these few words, Jesus breaks the 38-year bondage that this man had been under. In that quick, just with those words, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. And the man gets up and immediately he's healed. It's not a period of time that it takes for him to be healed. It's just immediate. It happens that quick. And this is Christ sovereignly exercising his gracious mercy toward this man, but yet powerfully speaking into his life and saying, get up and walk. And the man gets up and walks immediately. The power of Christ heals this man. I would imagine that this man was filled with joy and with excitement over his new strength and vitality. His legs work. He can walk. He doesn't have to depend on others to carry him to and from places. But you know, the text really doesn't tell us much to this effect. It it doesn't say much about this man's response, other than in a few verses we'll see that Jesus finds him in the temple in verse 14. In fact, verse 13 tells us Jesus slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. We don't know exactly why Jesus chose to heal this man over the multitude of people who were there that day. He just did. He comes to this man, a multitude of people in the five porticos around the pool waiting all for the same thing to be healed. He comes to this man and he walks up to him and says, do you want to get well? He knew his condition. The man says, I don't have anybody to put me in the pool when the water stirred. And Jesus said, get up, pick up your mat, and, and walk. You see, it's according to his own divine and sovereign plan. And I would say to you this morning, some things are simply beyond our comprehension. What we ought to see is this is a gracious act of the Lord. I would ask you this morning, what's the point then? The point Jesus makes is that he is sovereign. He has sovereign power over sickness. It doesn't mean that he heals every infirm person on earth, but he points us to a greater truth when he heals this man. He points us to the greater truth that Jesus always acts obediently with God's leading. And he does it ultimately for God's glory. He is always acting in behalf of God's glory. The outcome for this man should have been a holy life set apart to God. That's what it should have been. For those we know who are struggling, for those believers even who are struggling, I I want you to know that there's coming a day when death will reign no more. There's coming a day when sickness will not hinder us and and the fallen effects of sin that have been thrust upon God's good creation by our enemy Satan will be forever vanquished. It will be sentenced with him in hell. And on that great and terrible day, all whose lives are hidden in Christ will be resurrected to new life. You see, for now, now our bodies are subjected to decay and disease because of sin. But, but when Christ makes all things new, we will be with him in his kingdom. And what Jesus gives us here by this manifestation of his power is a wonderful foretaste of the glory that is to come. It is a wonderful foretaste of his power over sickness, over lameness. 
I think about 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Uh, we'll show it on the screen so you can follow along. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul says this, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Chapter 5, verse 1. For we know that if the earthly tent which is our house is torn down, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, this house we groan, or in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life." Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. Do you see that? That which we have to look forward to, Christ is giving us a foretaste even now as he heals this man. That that perfection and dwelling in his presence, that wonderful rest that we have to look forward to being with Christ And so immediately the man became well, picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now there's a hard division in the text in verse 9 between between the first part and the second part. It may be referenced in your scripture as uh, as a bold letter or a new paragraph. But it says now, it was on the Sabbath, or it was the Sabbath on that day. And what begins to happen here is a glorious work that Christ has just done encounters darkness as this man leaves that place and begins to go through the city the question becomes why did jesus choose to heal this man on the sabbath right 38 years he'd been in this condition why choose the sabbath day to to heal this man and the answer simply is that it reveals his identity he does it because it opens the door to reveal his identity One commentator, Ben Witherington, says it's hard to underestimate how important the Sabbath observance was to the Jews. In fact, by the end of the first century, they had outlined 39 actions that were considered to be violations in breaking the Sabbath. For the Jew, to break the Sabbath was a serious offense because eternal life was connected with keeping the Sabbath. Verse 10 reveals to us just how little the Jewish leaders were concerned with the well-being of the people. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath, and it's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. That's probably the last thing on this guy's mind, right? I mean, the guy that had just healed him told him to pick up his pallet and carry it and go. And so he does, he does that, he picks up his pallet But what we see here is that these religious leaders were more concerned with adhering to man-made tradition surrounding the Sabbath than they were to this man's healing. They couldn't care less that a man who had been lame for 38 years and in bondage had just been set free. I'm not exactly sure how we should take the man who was healed. 
John doesn't indicate that he became a follower of Jesus necessarily because verse 11 reveals that when this was put forth to this man, he answered those religious leaders and said, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. In other words, he blames the one who healed him for the current situation that he finds himself in. It's interesting to contrast this man's response with the blind man who was healed in, in chapter 9, verses 17 through 30 of John. John 9, 17 through 30, or 17 and then 30. Jesus heals a blind man. And so they said to the blind man, again, what, this is the religious leaders, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. Skip down to verse 30. They called him back before them again. And the man answered and said to them, that is the Pharisees, well, here's an amazing thing that you do not know where he is from, speaking of Jesus. And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, they said to him. But if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could not do anything or he could do nothing. See, the contrast here in chapter 5 is it seems that this man should have known. He should have known who it was that healed him as the blind man in chapter 9 knows that it was Jesus that had worked this power and was not afraid to say it was this man who healed me. But perhaps the religious leaders were partly to blame for censoring this man and stifling his newfound joy. And I would challenge us, church, let us, let us never be guilty of such grievous sin toward one another, toward our brothers and sisters in the faith. And ask us to consider, ask you and I to, to look inwardly, intrinsically, and, and even consider in our own lives, are we stumbling blocks or are we stepping stones for our brothers and sisters in the faith? We see in verse 14 that Jesus found him in the temple. Maybe he went to offer praise to God for his healing, or maybe he simply went to the priest so that they would confirm his healing. But the words that Jesus speaks to him in verse 14 when he encounters him in the temple, I think they're significant words that we need to hear and hear well this morning. After Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you've become well. Then he said, Do not sin any more, so that nothing worse happens to you. Do not sin any more, he tells him. Make sure, he says, that you give up this life of sin, basically, is what he's calling this man to. And as he tells him, Do not sin any more, so that nothing worse happens to you. He's speaking to him about his spiritual life and he's speaking to him about eternal life because later on he'll speak in this passage about the judgment that comes. Paul Harvey once told the story of how an Eskimo kills a wolf. The grisly account offers insight into the consuming self-destructive nature of sin. First, what happens is the Eskimo takes a knife make sure the blade is sharp, and then he 
dips it in blood and freezes the blade with the blood on it. And then he continues to add another layer of blood and another and another until the blade is completely concealed by the frozen blood. And then the next thing he does is he goes and takes that knife and he sticks it in the snow with the blood in pointing up. The sensitive nose of the wolf smells out and sniffs out the blood. As the wolf comes and discovers the bait, he begins licking and tasting the fresh frozen blood it begins to lick faster and more and more vigorously lapping the blade until the keen edge is bare feverishly now harder and harder the the wolf licks the blade in the arctic night his tongue having become numb from the cold blood so great becomes his craving for the blood that the wolf doesn't notice the razor sharp sting of the blade on his own tongue nor does he recognize the instant at which his insatiable thirst is being satisfied by his own warm blood. His carnivorous appetite just craves more and more until the dawn finds him dead in the snow. And he says sin is much the same and operates in much the same way. It's a fearful thing that we can become consumed by our own sin. And the reality is only God's grace keeps us from the wolf's fate. And Jesus challenges this man to leave a life of sin and believe in the one who has healed him. He is ultimately referencing the judgment on the last day that he'll speak about later. But but he's challenging this man, leave a life of sin. Don't let sin remain Because what happens when sin remains is it will kill us. It will cause us to suffer eternal condemnation. And so Jesus says to him for. Leave the life of sin so that nothing worse happens to you. What's worse than 38 years of being in bondage? An eternal life of being in bondage. Verse 15 tells us that he went away and told the Jews that Jesus was the man who had made him well. Again, it seems this man is showing much ingratitude toward the one who has healed him. We see in this man, I think, an example of of those who take the grace of the Lord Jesus in vain. And I want to challenge us to hear this. We mustn't waste the gracious gifts of our Lord. And we must heed the calling of Christ to rid our lives of sin. And the lives that he has has called us to. We we ought to live lives of holiness set apart to him. Not only does Jesus exercise sovereign power over sickness. and He also claims equality with God. We see that he can exercise sovereignty over sickness because he has equality with God. And so secondly, this morning, Jesus claims equality with God in verses 16 through 18. I want to show this to you. One commentator says, as there is a crescendo of the miraculous and of the claims made by and about Jesus, so there is also a rising tide of opposition to him by a certain segment of Jewish society. 
And this certainly becomes the case as we continue walking through John. We will see this rising tide of opposition that grows toward the Lord Jesus. John shows us how that which he wrote in the prologue of John 1.1 is true in the person and the work of Christ. That in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Verse 16 indicates that the Jews were persecuting Jesus for two reasons. The first reason they were persecuting Jesus was because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Remember, the Sabbath is, is a very important thing that, that the Jews would keep the Sabbath. And he had done this work of healing on the Sabbath. But the second, in verses 17 and 18, Jesus answered them in 17, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So the charges are twofold. One, he had engaged in working on the Sabbath. And secondly, he had committed blasphemy. This is a critical point. The question among Jewish scholarship was, does God keep the Sabbath? If God does keep the Sabbath, then who's controlling or orchestrating the universe became the question that they would ask one another. D.A. Carson points out the consensus among rabbis was that God works on the Sabbath for otherwise providence itself would weakly go into suspension. Toward the end of the first century, four eminent rabbis discussed the point and concluded that although God works constantly, he cannot rightly be charged with violating the Sabbath law since the entire universe is his domain and therefore he never carries anything outside of it. Secondly, God fills the whole world. And thirdly, God lifts nothing to a height greater than his own stature. Therefore, all agreed that God works continuously. Now, to the charge that Jesus couldn't do his work on the Sabbath, that's when Jesus replies, my father is working until now. And I myself am working. Do you see what he did there? He claimed equality with God. Since it's okay for God the Father to work on the Sabbath, Jesus is saying it's okay for me to work on the Sabbath. In other words, what he's saying is, he's saying Jesus is claiming that since he commanded the man to take up his mat and carry it, the man is not breaking the Sabbath. But Jesus' claim is also much greater than that. He is claiming to be both equal with God and in subordination to God. Equality with God in that he is God the Son and has power to give eternal life. And he has power to heal disease and infirmities. And he has power over natural elements. He's able to turn water into wine. He's able to multiply bread and fish to feed thousands. But he is also subordinate to God the Father in that he has come to carry out the divine mission for which the Jews were trying to kill him. It says in verse 18, they were seeking all the more to kill him for his Death would accomplish redemption for the world. And Jesus was sent by God on mission for God, doing the works of God, being obedient to God for the purpose of bringing glory to God the Father. 
Jesus exercises his sovereign power over sickness and he reveals his identity as God the Son by claiming equality with God. And so don't miss the truth about Jesus this morning and what John is revealing. That Jesus is God the Son, God in flesh, the second person of the Trinity. He has come down, entered our creation, and by doing so he has revealed that he has knowledge of us intimately, that he has compassion upon us graciously, and that he has the power to heal us, and that he does so graciously. And the power that we see manifested in the gospel, and even when people are healed today, it is a it is a sign that points us and ought to point us to this greater truth that there is coming a day when this rest, this Sabbath rest will happen for God's people and we will be in the presence of God. How do we know that? Because Christ himself has declared it. Because Christ himself has declared it. So I want to challenge us this morning. Don't be like the lame or the paralyzed man who was healed but missed the offer of eternal life. Church, let us not be like those religious leaders who would stifle the joy in the life of those believers who are walking by faith and experience the overflowing joy that comes from Christ. And then, believer, let me ask you this this morning. Are you at a place where you're walking in joy? Where the Lord Jesus Christ has filled you with joy and that you are able to celebrate this wonderful truth that the Lord has called us to? This wonderful truth of eternal life that Jesus himself gives. Is that where you're at today? I want to challenge you this morning as Drew comes and sings a, a song and gives us an opportunity for just a time of response. <clears throat> I want to challenge you to do this, to investigate your own heart, look deep within intrinsically and confess these things before the Lord that he is challenging you in and calling you to and spend some time this morning evaluating your own relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ in preparation for the elements in the Lord's Supper. Let us pray and then you respond as the Lord leads. Father, we thank you this morning for your goodness and your grace toward us. Thank you, Lord, for loving us and thank you, Father, for extending the gift of salvation to us. And now, Lord, as we consider your word in our own hearts, I pray that you would strengthen us to respond this morning as you're leading. May we not be those who harbor sin in our life, but maybe may we be those who confess our sin before you. For we know, Lord, that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.